Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am welcomed by, I'm welcomed by, I'm welcoming Dr. Aaron Horshig. Did I pronounce the last name correctly? I've heard it once before. I'm not sure if I did it right though. You got it, man. Awesome. So Aaron is a, well, he's the owner of Squat University. So many of you may be aware of that brand, um, fantastic work over on Instagram, on YouTube and over on the website, which I think is fantastic. So I'm really delighted to have Aaron today. He's a physical therapist, coach, speaker and writer. Uh, he is a certified and uh, certified strength and conditioning specialist, author of the Squat Bible. Something we're going to be talking a lot about today is squatting, and has been published in numerous professional journals. He's also a competitive Olympic weightlifter since 2005, um, and placed sixth in 2011 U.S. Nationals, which is pretty damn cool. Uh, so <laughs> you walk the walk and talk the talk, which is always really helpful for um, actually educating people in a real productive and practical manner. I think. I appreciate it, man. I think that the big reason why I've been able to connect with so many people is because, like you said, you sort of walk the walk. I've been involved in sports my entire life, and especially I fell in love with weightlifting when I got to uh, to college in 2005. And uh, I guess an unfortunate turn of events, I've always continued to get injured. Oh. You know, I, I think I'm like most athletes that I rarely go a couple months without something else popping up that has limited my training. And in an effort to find my own uh, resolution of a lot of those injuries, I've sort of become educated in a way that now hopefully I can start delivering a lot of content to help other people decrease their body's aches and pains and help them find their true athletic potential in whatever avenue they're trying to uh, pursue. Yeah, I think it's it's a really sad outcome of injuries and stuff, but it's like a really positive thing. I know a lot of people, the reason they are where they are and the expert of wherever they're an expert of is because of the fact that they've gone through so many hard things and they've had to go through that. A lot of the people I help are people who have challenges that were very similar to mine and I've somehow been able to get through it. So well, I guess in some ways the the negative things that have happened to you have been very positive in some strange way, if that makes sense. Definitely. I mean, it's always a blessing in disguise. And it's tough when you look at injuries and different things that set you back from your performance goals to have that type of mindset. Because when you're in the midst of training and performing, especially if you're trying to get ready for competition, the last thing you want to pop up is an injury, something that's taking you out of your role of getting ready to compete at your best. So it's extremely frustrating. Um, but, you know, in doing so, you can sort of learn something from that. Try to take something away to empower yourself to be better the next time something pops up. And then what I've done is I've also taken that and coupled it with my experiences, not only in education, but also clinically treating as a physiotherapist with so many athletes who have had similar injuries over the past decade and just sort of combined all that and just pushed it out you know, to every single person out there. My goal is to sort of take away this firewall that's been in front of so many people for so long that if you have an ache and pain as a competitive athlete or just as someone who's involved in fitness and loves working out, you know, to take away this inability to find access to what you need. You know, so often today people find injury and they don't go and seek help until it affects their performance. Yeah. You know, they think that aches and pains are common with training and it's just a part of lifting heavy weights and we continue to push through pain 
Um, I think until they turn into big injuries a lot of time, and it comes at a detriment to our performance eventually. But what are the options? It's like, well, either I'm going to just try to Google search something and see what pops up. It may or may not be complete crap. Mm -hmm. I could go to a doctor, a medical doctor, which is often the first line of defense. And the medical doctor often does not understand weightlifting and powerlifting and CrossFit. They think it's you know way dangerous for the body, right. which it's not if done properly. And they say, well, stop doing what you're doing for two weeks. Take this ibuprofen to get your swelling and inflammation down and then maybe come back to it eventually. But it's probably not the best to squat really, really heavy. You may go see a physiotherapist eventually. They may or may not understand really how to treat you. I mean, we're still in the world where a lot of people are treated with hot packs, dry needling only, and then sent on their way because they improved their symptoms. Mm -hmm. You know, and we are seeing the emergence now and a change in our world where we're seeing a number of of coaches and physios that have the strength minded background and they have the movement first approach. And we're trying to slowly chip away at this old, outdated model of how we approach injury and performance. And hopefully it's something that's going to take hold and we're going to see some big changes in the way in which we approach training and the way in which we approach injuries because of it. Absolutely. It's such a scary and I think a lot of the listeners probably are feeling scared in that you kind of the things you were saying there sounded all too real in that I've certainly trained with like slight injuries and things are slightly hurting and then it's not till something goes to the point at which I can't perform and then it's like oh the reason you end up putting it off is because like you rightly said you see your doctor in, in reality they're not necessarily specialized in what you're doing and they don't really understand. And then like physiotherapists, some can be great, but you can't always know. Just like personal trainers, you can find there's yeah. some really good ones. You don't always know, and so it can be quite off-putting. And whilst there's a lot of good information coming out of nutrition and training, so you can kind of help yourself around that, the physio side, I think you're doing an excellent job on furthering that. So I'm glad that, again, we have you on and we can further educate <laughs> the listeners. And before we dig into something I wanted to dig into, which was kind of squatting as the physique athlete and how to keep squatting and doing it kind of correctly, I guess. Uh, in terms of prehab, I don't know if this is a word that you use or is it something you kind of would think is something that's really good for like a physique competitor or anyone really. What are the things that we should be doing to prevent injury kind of as just a, a general checklist of good practice? Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing is to understand what are we using the word prehab for? What is the context today? And a lot of times people will misconstrue it or they'll use it different ways. Basically, the entire idea behind it nowadays in the way in which we use it is pre-injury exercises, basically. What can I do to minimize the risk of having an injury? Now, the way classically we would use it, prehab means pre-rehabilitation as far as uh, pre-operatively. So if someone tore their ACL, they would potentially, depending on their doctor, their time, the amount of insurance visits they have and things like that, they would come to physical therapy for a few weeks in order to decrease their swelling, get some range of motion back and prepare them for having surgery so that their outcomes are better after. So that's sort of the traditional sense of prehab. Now, the way in which a lot of people use the word today context-wise is pre-injury, sort of what can I do to decrease my risk of injury? So regardless of the semantics of how you're using it, basically the idea is what can you do to decrease your injury? What we look at are basically we have to come back to a movement approach. How are you moving? Are you able to own and coordinate your body well under load? And when we're talking about the squat, we're looking at positioning and patterning. Can you sit into the bottom of a deep squat? 
or your feet in a stable arched position or your feet collapsed over? Are your feet turned out like a duck or are they in a good, relatively straightforward position? Are your knees in line with your toes or are your knees collapsed in that valgus collapse? You know, what does your back look like? So we always look from a movement perspective first. I guess if you're coming from a performance standpoint, technique, very similar. We're, we're basically looking, how does the body move? How does it move body weight? Do you have full control? How does it move under load? Because a lot of times once you apply, apply a load to your body, it can often break down if you don't have sufficient stability, mobility, your movement coordination's off. So first off, we look at movement. If we have deficits in movement, problems, things that don't look good, eventually that could lead to injury the more and more you lift. Now, if anyone has a disclaimer or doesn't believe that's true, go and lift 500 pounds with a horribly rounded back 10 times and tell me how your back feels. Movement with poor crappy posture and uh, quality of control eventually leads to injury. Now, what we do then is we then break down, we have a, have a systematic way of sort of breaking down the body to find what are the reasons that your movement's breaking down. So you have to have a number of tests and measures to objectively weed out what are your weak links. What are the things that your body needs specifically to fix the movement? It all has to come back to the movement quality in the end. So is it ankle range of motion? Is it hip mobility? Is it poor core control? You know, so all those different things are, are qualities that I've tried to share across social media to help everyone understand, hey, my background's when I squat. All right, well, do you just need more core control? Or is it because your ankles are so stiff that as you try to squat down all the way, your knees can't translate further forward over your toes, and your back then has to round to compensate in order for you to continue descending into the hole. So for that reason, until you work on your ankle mobility, your back's gonna continue rounding if you continue to squat that deep. Eventually, you continue to load your body in a rounded position, you're going to have injury. So your prehab would then be a little bit of ankle mobility, probably a little core stability work, and then get on the barbell. Now you're going to be setting your body up that much better as far as your quality of control under load so that you have less risk for injury. So that's sort of the whole idea of what is prehab nowadays. Fantastic. And you, yeah, correctly, the way I was meaning it was like prevention of injury. So that's exactly how I was kind of the context under which I was saying it. And uh, I think the idea behind technique is huge. And I think a lot of physique competitors are getting a better understanding of that now that that's a really important thing. Is there anything in addition to that? I think a lot of people spend lots of time like stretching or foam rolling. Are these things we have to be doing or even beneficial necessarily to prevent injury? What might they be doing for us? It's all about finding what your body needs individually to meet that goal of good movement. A way that I like to look at warming up, and this is no matter if you are a physique competitor, a weightlifter, a powerlifter, a crossfitter, a fitness enthusiast, is you need to approach your warm up like going to a fancy restaurant and looking at the menu. No one goes into a fancy restaurant, looks at the menu and says, I'll have one of everything. You always say, all right, I'll have this appetizer, I'll have this entree, I'll have this dessert. Well, when we look at the different qualities of a warm-up, usually we have a little bit of soft tissue work, foam rolling, things like that. We usually have a little bit of mobility work. Stretching can be included in that. And then we usually have a little stability work. Sort of all three of those components are very important at making sure that our body is set up to perform as well as possible. Now, if we do so, decreased injury risk is a side effect of that. But obviously our main goal 
as an athlete, as a person wanting to walk into the gym, is performance. We don't come and say, well, I'm doing these squats today because my back's going to be at less risk tomorrow. No, we go, I'm doing these squats today because I'm going to squat 500 pounds tomorrow. You know, that's sort of the goal and the way in which we view things. As a uh, physique competitor, you're going, I'm doing these squats today because I want to develop my glutes, my hams. You're looking at specific areas that you're trying to work on. From a performance aspect, I guess you would say, your performance is just on stage, not necessarily in the weight room or on a field of play. So when we're looking at those things, first one, soft tissue. Foam rolling can be extremely helpful for a number of people. Now, what it does, there's a couple of different theories out there. Regardless of the specific theory, if we're talking about uh, you know, changing um, a little bit of the lymphatic system in the way in which uh, swelling may be moving in and out of tissues and different hydration of the tissues may be uh, in flux, or if we're neurologically changing the way in which the body and the brain are interacting with the muscles, decreasing tone, enhancing some certain muscles in the way in which they're turning on. Um, we can say that foam rolling for many people can improve joint range of motion directly after applying. doesn't have to be stupid long. You don't have to be foam rolling for 10 minutes, usually a minute, minute and a half at a specific area for some people can improve joint range of motion after. So if someone have limited ankle mobilities due to some tightness in the calf muscles, we can foam roll those calves for like a minute or so, jump back up, retest our squat, and often you should be able to feel like your ankle can have a little bit more range of motion, a little bit more mobility there right after. That's showing that it's a good thing for your body. Now, does everyone have to foam roll the exact same things? No. On Monday, I may have some really stiff calves because I just walked 20 miles the day before. You know, on Tuesday, uh, my adductors and the inner groin may be a little stiff because I did a ton of squats or sumo deadlifts the day before. So you're always sort of doing a check, recheck and sort of pulling out the correct tool in its application in where you need to use it to improve, again, quality movement and therefore your performance. So that's the first one is soft tissue work. Mobility work is next. And that may be stretches. That may be joint mobilizations based on specific areas of the body that you need a little help on. And then you have stability, and that could be the McGill Big 3 for core stability activation. It could be maybe some lateral band walks to increase the activity of your glute meat in the way in which it's controlling your knee. You know, So there's a number of different things that fit into there. But when you have an approach of making sure that your warm-up is priming your body to perform as well as possible, then when under, whenever you get under the barbell, whenever you do pick up some weights, your body's gonna be moving that much better, you're gonna have that much better control of your body, which is then going to, like I said, decrease injury risk and improve your performance thereafter. Fantastic, yeah, I think it's the individualization element of a warm up and everything like that is so important because you do see, I, I used to be one of these people who spend ages on this foam roller and it's like, I don't even, I don't know, I might not have even been training lower body that day. And I just thought, oh, this is just something I have to do before I, I, I train. So I think taking stretching and taking kind of mobility and foam rolling and individualizing it to allow you to have what you talked about in the beginning, kind of the technique for that session. I think that's fantastic. I absolutely love that. Um, moving towards squats specifically, uh, I think we've probably covered kind of how to, unless you have anything more, but how to warm up for a squat. How, how do you like to approach that generally for most people? Yeah. So like I said, you have your generalized warm up. We're getting some blood flow into the extremities. We're working on some soft tissue work, some mobility, stability, whatever your body needs specifically to prime your body to get under the barbell. And then the first thing we do isn't put weight on the bar. 
we take just the barbell. We go through the movement. We grab the ground with our feet. We screw our feet into the ground to create that tension all from the ground up. If your foot is not stable against the ground and collapsing that arch as you go down, everything else up the body is going to be moving from an unbalanced platform, from an inefficient platform, almost like the base of a house of cards collapsing. So we have to establish that stable foot, the tripod foot I like to call it. So the base of the first toe, the base of the heel, and the base of the fifth toe are all down and grabbing the ground the entire movement. We're starting the movement with the hips, we're squatting down, we're staying balanced, bar over the midfoot when viewing it from the side, and then we're coming back up, we're checking that first squat that first couple barbell squats is your last and final check to make sure that your body's moving well, everything is grooving in pattern like it should before we start loading the bar up. Too often what I see is people walking in the gym, they swing their arms around, they may swing their legs around, put a little bit of weight on the bar and then they go. And they think that just by doing the movement with weight that they're automatically going to get the desired outcome and performance. And a lot of times we find that if you jump too quickly, you don't see Usain Bolt just run out there and just go run a hundred, you know, like he's always warming up in the back where a lot of cameras aren't, but you know, every athlete warms up. So why is it any different when it comes to the weight room? We need to be able to warm up and prime our body whenever we get under the barbell. So those are the things that I'm looking for is a good warm up. We're getting under the barbell, uh, putting the bar on our back, no weight. And we're doing a couple reps and we're going super slow. Some of that time under tension. So sometimes I'll do a five second tempo descent into the bottom just sort of hold that bottom position, feel my stability. Do I have full control over my body? Do I own the movement? Can I take some big breaths in that bottom position? I just talked to Kelly Start of Mobility Wad last week, and one of the conversations that came up is correct breathing. Right. And that if you can't breathe in a certain position, you don't own that position. So in that bottom position, you should have full control of your breathing capacity and your ability to take some deep breaths in and out. And obviously with light load on the back, you know, it's okay to take some deep breaths in and out at the bottom. Whenever we are then squatting bigger weight, we want to take that big breath in, hold it, and then execute the repetition before letting that air out so that we maintain a high level of pressure in our abdominal. So yeah, those are the big things that I'm looking for when it comes to the squat, the tempo. Sometimes I like to do one and a half squats. Mm -hmm. So I'll do a slow tempo into the very bottom of the squat. I'll feel for those feet staying connected to the ground, squeezing the glutes, getting those turned on. We're going to rise a few inches, hold it for a couple seconds, back down. We may do a few repetitions of that and then come all the way back. Basically priming the ascent where the hips and chest are rising at the same rate so that everything's working well in coordination. The thing you don't want to do is you'll get down to the bottom and then you sort of call it that stripper squat where the hips fly up first or the good morning squat. Yep. Um, it, you know, we need to make sure that the hips and chest are rising at the same rate. So that way that which we're priming that with just the barbell, the open barbell and getting that coordination down and keep keeping in balance. And a lot of times thinking of your foot position in the way in which your body is spread across those three points of contact is huge as well. Closing your eyes sometimes, executing your squat with the, the open barbell, feeling am I getting too far on my toes? Am I too far back on my heels? Because a lot of times coaches love that yeah. cue, wait through the heels. Well, that may be a great cue if you're popping up on your toes every single time, but for a lot of people, you can go off balance just in the opposite direction if your body weight's too far on your heels. So you have to have that full grounded foot the entire time. Big toes jammed straight down in the ground, creating that firm foundation. 
and then making sure that everything's rising in coordination. That's sort of my go-to warm-up every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times I love to throw a hip circle on. Uh, Mark Bell with Slingshot makes a great yep. tool. Um, just throw one of those on around the knees, and what you're doing is you're driving your knees out against that band resistance, and it's turning on and helping you prime that hip external rotation torque getting those glutes to turn on and stabilize the knees so everything's moving well in line like a well-oiled machine fantastic yeah i really like that and in terms of uh, with the warm-up do you ever find people can't maybe get as deep with the squat when they've just got the bar and then they start putting a little bit of weight on and then they're suddenly maybe a couple of inches deeper and do you see that Mm -hmm. as a problem is that something to be worried about should they not be going that low or is that okay if they can control it what are your opinions I think you should have full access to your range of motion. Now, sometimes we see these big power lifters that weigh well over 300 pounds that sometimes just are so stiff, um, just naturally that they are always telling me that they can't get any deeper unless they have a lot of weight on their back. In the sport of powerlifting, where we're only judged on our ability to go slightly below that parallel position for a passing squat, there's an exception to it because sometimes I don't need that power lifter to have ass to grass capabilities all the time necessarily there's obviously different sides of the argument but for pure competition in that aspect you know maybe only being able to slightly go above that and uh being able to execute a squat to full depth for a passing squat is ideal on the other hand i think every single person should have the ability to fully execute a full depth squat regardless if there's weight on their back or not and if you can't if you're always like i need at least 300 pounds on my back to go all the way down that's showing that you're using that weight as a compensation to increase your balance capabilities to feel balanced so you can actually get all the way down a lot of times people they say they can't get to full depth without a bar on their back they're lacking control and stability and mobility of their body in some area and their body basically is just not allowing them to get all the way down so it's not until they put the weight on their back that they're basically feeling a little bit more stable and pushing themselves into the bottom. I find that's often not a good thing. We, we need that control of our full body. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I, I would say if that's the, if that's the case and uh, you are unable to get to full depth without weight on your back, you need to work on your ability. You've got some weak link in the way in which you're controlling your movement because, again, it all comes back to we need to own our movement. The squat, unless you are a competitive power lifter, the squat is an accessory lift to other things. It's an accessory lift to a clean and jerk or a snatch or it's an accessory lift to you jumping and landing with full control. It's an accessory lift to you picking a box off the ground. So if you don't have full control in just your ability to move first before you load the body weight up with the barbell on your back, there's an issue. And we need to address that. Great. Yeah, I think it's, uh, for me at least, I've had it where I think in the past I wasn't aware of that issue. And as I've got more knowledgeable and I understand, it's just a case of sometimes it just takes a bit more time to open up and allow you to sit deeper into it rather than just, like you said, just chucking weight on just to get into it immediately. So I think that's great Mm -hmm. advice. Yeah. In terms of um, breathing when squatting, we kind of touched on it a little bit there. What f- mm-hmm. You kind of talked about the Fasalva maneuver. Is that how you like people to utilize breathing within squatting? Yeah, I mean, whenever we're talking about squatting weight, we're wanting to keep our spine as safe as possible. And we want to keep the resiliency of our core as strong as possible. So when we're talking about squatting big weight, if you let your breath out too soon, instantly a lot of force is transferred directly to the spine. So your core can only manage just by itself so much 
of stability for your spine whenever you're doing a movement. But whenever you breathe, whenever you take a huge breath and you brace your core afterwards, you increase intra-abdominal cavity pressure, which then stabilizes your spine to a greater degree than with muscle contraction alone. So when we're talking about uh, squatting big weight, we need to have our core stability that much more intense in order to maintain the resiliency of our spine. So when we're talking about a, a big weight, take the barbell off the rack, you take a step out, take a big breath, you brace your core, and you keep that core contracting, you keep that breath held all the way down into the bottom, and then back up, and you don't let the breath out, you don't start letting the breath out until after you've passed the sticking point of the ascent. And even then, it's a slow release. It's not a, you don't let it out too fast, because what that does is instantaneously, you're gonna be drawing a lot of force directly to the spine. Over time, that can create a lot of forces at the low back, which could lead to injury. Let alone take injury out of it, we're talking performance-wise. If your core is not as stable as it could be, it decreases your ability to produce force in your legs. So if you think about it like this, before you even get under the weight, completely let your air out, put a barbell on the rack, and just try to stand up with it, with your core just completely relaxed. And then get under there. Brace your core, take a huge breath, brace, hold it, and then stand up with the weight out of the rack. How do you feel? 99% of the time, you're gonna be like, wow, that's a lot lighter on my back. It feels that much better. It's because you've increased the stability of your body. And when you're putting a load on your back and then trying to lift it, squat it all the way down and back up, we need that stability in our back, not only for injury prevention-wise, so that our spine doesn't buckle in too, but for performance. Dr. Stuart McGill has a saying where he says, spinal stability and core stability enhances distal athleticism and performance. And it's because through research, they found that stable core, the more stable your core can be, the more powerful you can be with different things, like a punch or a kick. So the same aspect carries over to squatting and deadlifting and things like that. So if you can have a more stable core, it's going to allow you to perform the squat with more power, with more resiliency of technique, and you're gonna be able to keep that spine much healthier for much longer. So it's a more spine-friendly way of moving. Fantastic, yeah, it's something I, I really feel when I don't wear my belt to then I put my belt on and suddenly my core is just so much more stable and I've got a lot more power out of the hole. It's just like, I don't know, it adds probably 10 kilos to my squat, if not more. Do you, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on kind of belts? Are you, are you a fan of them? Uh, how, how do yeah. you like them to be used? So think of this. Whenever we look at our spine, it's just a stacked linkage of bones, right? Every single muscle that surrounds the spine has to work in harmony with the other ones to create stability so that the spine does not buckle. So if we look at a radio tower, there's a lot of like guy wires that come off. That's the same way that we look at our spine. And all those muscles have to work together, almost like a symphony orchestra. You can't have the trombones off playing their own thing or else obviously the orchestra sound as a whole sounds horrible. So the same thing has to go with our core. Every single muscle has a role. It's not just one muscle over the other. They all have to work together. So first and foremost, when we talk about stability, it's all those muscles interacting together and contracting and bracing together. So when you get under a barbell and you brace hard, like someone's about to jack you right in the stomach, that creates instantaneous stability and tension in that entire body, like the guy wires tensioning for a radio tower. And that's gonna keep your spine nice and stable. A belt just adds one more layer of restraint around. Now, if you try to just wear a belt 
and don't have the necessary prerequisite ability to stabilize your own spine through muscle contraction, you will eventually wind up with injury because you're giving yourself a false sense of stability. So a weightlifting belt doesn't prevent injury mm -hmm. at all. It only aids in performance for some people. So if your goal is to lift as heavy as possible, a weightlifting belt can be very helpful. But first, you have to learn how to use your body's own natural weightlifting belt. And that's something a lot of people don't realize is until they have the ability to stabilize and brace and enhance their stability through muscle contraction alone and maintaining that brace throughout an entire movement, they don't need to be using a belt. But for the athletes that have learned that ability and can maintain that stability and stiffness throughout the entire range of motion and through a, a good amount of weight, we can then add that belt to even further enhance our stability. There's been research that has shown that using a weightlifting belt can enhance power through multiple reps and maintain your ability to, uh, to maintain stiffness basically throughout a higher rep range. So if an athlete's doing an eight rep max squat, obviously as you continue going, you're gonna start tiring, your back's gonna fatigue, different muscles fatigue, technique breaks down, power obviously decreases from rep one to rep eight. Well, wearing a weightlifting belt can help mitigate some of that difference, difference basically and allow you to continue performing well. So I think a weightlifting belt can be very helpful but it has to come with the prerequisites of learning how to use your body's own natural weightlifting belt first. And even then, there's some athletes that don't like to use one, you mm -hmm. know, and there's nothing wrong with it as long as, again, they're able to maintain correct technique. Excellent. And you, you touched on it a little bit earlier, actually, with, I think, foot position and kind of these sort of things. I'd love to hear your opinion on kind of we see Olympic weightlifters with their necks like jerked up and some people talk about like neck packing is the way to go. If you mm -hmm. want to talk through kind of, I don't know, neck position, kind of where are the hips and knees, things like this at the feet, yeah. that'd be great. So let's talk feet first because obviously that's the foundation for an entire movement. We don't start decorating the walls of a house if we've got a cracked foundation, right? So we need to understand the foot position first. For most people, if you're using the squat as something that's going to carry over to other things in life, carry over to a jump in a land for a football player, a basketball player, I don't want your toes pointing 45 degrees out to the side because that's not how we jump and land or that's a torn ACL eventually. So the way in which we squat should emphasize that. For most people, a squat with your toes slightly out to the side, like that maybe 5, 10, 12 degrees max, that's going to be something that's going to allow you to maintain good structural competency of the rest of your lift, maintain that good stable arch in your foot, and you're performing well in a way that's going to relate over and strengthen that movement that's going to turn over to like jumping and landing. There are some athletes that do need a little bit of a different foot position. Some athletes have different anatomy uh, setup of their body. Some people have like a crazy amount of retroversion in their hip. I don't think it's as high as a lot of people think they are. You know, I think a lot of times we haven't reached the max potential for uh, addressing our own mobility issues. Right. So we automatically go, oh, I got hip retroversion. So I need to turn my toes out 40 mm -hmm. degrees. That's probably not the case. Let's look at some things first. Let's address hip mobility, maybe some stability emphasis, look at your ankles. There's some other things we need to address first before just copying off that, you know, we think it's 100% just anatomy. So that's the first thing. Um, there are some that are going to specialize in certain sports, such as weightlifting, where in order to receive the barbell in the deepest portion of the lift, those toes sometimes splay out a little bit more. And that's okay. I think sometimes if we're talking about uh, sport-specific motions. 
So again, there's a lot to the uh, conversation when it comes to the foot position, but for most people, we wanna have a stable foot in a good arch, the toes are only slightly pointed out, we're not you know, turning them out like a duck 40 degrees. Um, and then we're talking about you know good alignment all the way up through the rest of the body. The knees are in line with the feet, uh, the trunk is in a good held neutral position with the spine. In terms of the neck position, obviously we wanna to try to keep as much of a neutral spine position as possible whenever we're squatting. What that means is that for most people, looking relatively straightforward is going to accomplish that. Now, if you have a really, really inclined chest position during a squat because you've got crazy long legs and a really short torso, you know, it may put yourself in a position where looking slightly forward and then down at an angle may keep your neck in a, a little bit better position. But I think for most people, looking straight forward is going to be the most helpful position for your head and your neck. And that's going to help you maintain balance. I really, really discourage looking down. Mm -hmm. And there's some trains of thought out there that want to look down at the ground saying that it preserves a 100% neutral spine. The neutral spine is slightly curved. It's not 100% right. flat. Yeah. We have a certain amount of lordosis to our spine. Um, so when you're looking straight down, you're flattening out that neck completely. And I think what happens is that if you look down, your body's going to go down. And I see a lot of athletes, yes, I'm sure there's some that can get away with it, but a lot of athletes that look down at the ground, they end up falling forward as a fault when the weight gets really heavy and their hips pop up too soon. So for most people, looking straight forward is going to be very helpful. Now, looking directly upwards, again, we're doing a lot of cranking that neck backwards. That can't be really great sometimes. And again, you're going to see movement compensations because of it as well. If we're talking about the Olympic lifts, again, same thing. We're usually looking straight forward, maybe slightly up. And again, it's a balance thing. Mm -hmm. I don't want people looking down at the ground. I don't want people cranking their neck back too far. Sometimes sort of in between, sort of finding that good medium for what works best for your body and is safe is is what it's all about. Sometimes you'll see a little bit of individual variation in that. Cool. Yeah, I and I'd also love you to touch on the kind of maybe foot stance in terms of like how wide and maybe different hip anatomy. I think a lot of people, they see, I mean, maybe it is the Olympic weightlifters, they see them squatting arse to grass literally like an inch away from the floor. And they're like, I must be able to do that. And they come down and they're like, I can't get anywhere close. Or they cause themselves like issues. I know some people kind of overuse injuries within the hips and they end up having like surgery and things. So I'd love to hear you mm -hmm. kind of talk through why we can't all necessarily squat as deep as maybe someone else. <laughs> Well, we got to see first off, when we're talking about Olympic lifters, we're talking about a very small percentage of the population as far as those who excel. They have excellent hip mobility. They've got hips that allow themselves anatomy-wise to get into very, very deep positions. Now, in saying that, there are a lot of people that can still squat much deeper than they are. And the reason they haven't been able to get down there is because they've never exposed their body to that position. They never squat. I mean, I go around and I teach around the world. And one of the questions I ask everyone is who here sits in a deep squat for more than a minute a day, just a minute. Most people never raise their hand. So how are you going to tell me that you have a problem getting down into a deep barbell squat when you never even expose your body to that position throughout the other 23 hours of the day? You know, we need, if you want to have a deep squat, you have to work at it. You have to expose your body to that position. You have to improve your ankle mobility. Sure, your hips aren't going to be feeling very great if you only try to jam them into that deep flex position one hour a day when you've got a load on your back. You've never improved your mobility and your sense of what is a good position and what's the correct depth because you've never been in it throughout your day. Not everyone has the same stance width. Some people a little bit wider, some people a little bit more narrow. 
But again, a lot of times the squat stance that you take should carry over to the way in which you jump and land. We don't see a lot of people jump and land with a, a three foot wide stance. Why are you trying to squat like that? Now, yes, there's some power lifters that have a very specific individualized way that they squat very wide for competition. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking to the 90% of people out there that aren't competitive elite power lifters. And in that case, the way in which you jump and land should be relatively close to the way in which you squat shoulder width apart, knees in line with the toes, toes relatively straightforward, good arch in the feet. That's the way in which we want to expose our body throughout the day to that deep position. And when you do so, eventually you're going to notice that your hips are opening up and your ankles are opening up because you're in that position and you're owning that position. So the deep squat position is capable for a lot of people. And I think most haven't even come close to realizing it because they don't spend time there. So you can't give the excuse of, well, I can't squat as deep as that person. And then I ask, well, what are you doing to fix it? And they're like, well, I just try to go down that deep when I squat with a barbell on my back one, two times a week. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the one thing as far as stance width there. Yes, there's anatomy differences. Some people have very antiverted hips or retroverted hips as far as the angle of the hip socket and things like that. Yes, there's going to be some individual variation. You'll see some athletes that can literally sit their butt on their heels all the way down and touch the ground. That's obviously a little bit different than some athletes who may only be able to get, you know, their hips well below, you know, baseline. But the ability to get to a full depth squat should be capable for everyone, no matter what type of anatomy you have. And you have to work at it if you want to see improvements. Cool. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think on the same line of thought, I think recently there's been some discussion and controversy at least within the kind of physique realm in terms of like whether or not we should have our heels raised whether or not squat shoes are required or even necessary where have you where do you come with kind of squat shoes do you find them as like a benefit with the heel do you like the heel a lesser or more where are Mm -hmm. you with that so if we're talking about the physique realm we're obviously not coming out with the idea of olympic weightlifting because that's where the shoes were originally developed the shoes with the race heel were given and started to be used because of the idea that if i can raise my heels a little bit it's going to allow me to squat a little bit deeper with my chest a little bit more upright which means in the receiving position of a snatch and clean i can be a little bit more efficient so they started being exposed in like the 50s and 60s when athletes were start started changing uh, their footwear in competition. Now, when it comes to the squat, again, what's it do? A raised heel allows you to squat a little bit deeper with a little bit more upright chest position. So for some people, it's allowing them to get into even better technical positions. Now, for a compete or for a physique athlete or someone who's just in the gym to to improve their appearance, I guess we'll say, not necessarily improve their uh, performance on the field or in competition. Uh, again, it all comes down to movement. What does that person need to improve the quality of their movement? If they have flat sole shoes on, or even if they're lifting barefoot, and they've got great stability in their feet, and they've got great mobility, and they're squatting to a good depth, there's no need for weightlifting shoes. If that person needs a little bit of assistance with ankle mobility, Yes, I want you to warm up and improve your ankle mobility mm-hmm. with flexibility exercises and things like that. Because again, our goal is to improve quality of control and our movement technique. But putting on a pair of weightlifting shoes whenever it's time to pick up that barbell can allow you to then hit even better positions sometimes. Again, that's going to help decrease your injury risk and improve your performance with whatever type of squat you're trying to perform for most people. So there's not a problem with using them. But again, it all comes down to the individual. I see some power lifters that use them, some that don't. 
-hmm. For some people, I just automatically say, try them out. See what you think. Do you like them? Do you not? I don't think it's a requirement, especially in the physique world, that you use them. But it is a requirement to have good quality technique. Yeah. So in that instance, you have to ask yourself, do I need this? Or that when I do put the barbell on my back, I need a little bit more assistance. I think that's what it comes down to. Excellent. And uh, to keep on the same kind of trail of thought, we talked about belt now, we've talked about shoes. What about knee sleeves? See, powerlifters using these, and I've worn kind of like SBD knee sleeves. They definitely give me like a bit of more like <laughs> similar to the belt it gives me a little bit more yeah. push out of the hole what about mm -hmm. kind of i guess for health and also maybe touch on physique competitors if you have any thoughts on that kind of knee sleeves and whether or not they're something we want to be utilizing yeah so i think the big thing is to understand the difference between sleeves and wraps now Knee wraps obviously are traditional to more so the powerlifting idea because the uh, filaments inside the wrap actually provides almost an elastic recoil that helps propel you out of the hole. So for a lot of athletes that are in powerlifting, sometimes they will train with wraps or even compete with wraps and it will add 100, 200 pounds on their squat because of the help it provides in basically that recoil out of the bottom, almost like a spring being unloaded. Now, sleeves for the most part are only knee warmers. They only keep the temperature of the knee and the surrounding musculature nice and warm throughout the entire training session. If you like it, I don't have a problem with it. There are some, like you mentioned, like the SBD sleeves, there are some that are very, very thick that will do similar things to the wraps as far as giving you a little assistance out of the bottom of the squat. Personally, I don't recommend many people lift with knee sleeves because most people don't use them for the reasons that you said. Yeah, it helps me feel like I get a little bit more weight. Mm -hmm. Most people use them because they're like, ah, oh, my knees were a little achy. So I wear sleeves and it helps my knees feel good. There's a reason for that. And if you just try to cover it up by using sleeves, you're doing something incorrect. We need to address why that problem's there in the first place. So for that instance, I recommend most people stay away from them and actually address why they're there. Now, if you are just using them because you're like, my knees don't feel bad. I just like the way they feel. I like the comfort. I feel like it provides maybe a little bit more sensory feedback of my position of my knees. I like the way they feel warm throughout a long training session. I don't have any problem with them. Mm -hmm. But again, it's sort of like those, eh, do you need it? Probably not. Is it wrong to use? Not necessarily. It's always individual to yeah. the basic, you know, to the person. Excellent. And again, I'm going to jump a little bit here, but we talked, you talked a little bit about, I think we might have talked about it, butt wink a little bit, or at least this is something that many people would have heard about where uh, the butt kind of winks down. And a lot of people end up blaming this on tight hamstrings. Is it tight hamstrings? What what could be causing butt wink? What can we do to kind of maybe alleviate that? Yeah, there's I, there's so much bad information out there when it comes to butt wink. Basically, what it is is as you squat down, ideally our spine is in a neutral position. So our spine and our pelvis have a nice little lordosis. Our spine's in a good position, but as you continue your squat, your pelvis eventually turns under the body. So when it pulls under the back, the low back specifically, like L4, L5 segments, uh, they start flexing. They move out of that neutral position. And that's that winking motion that we see because it gets down there 
And then as you start coming back up, it then pulls back, extends, and back into that neutral position, and you come back up. So it's that winking. It's that flexion and extension movement at the very bottom of the squat. Now, for most people, that motion over time with load on your back is the mechanism that creates issues at the spine. No question about it. There's been research done that shows that movement of the spine into flexion and extension specifically concentrated at L4, L5 because there's a stress concentration there because it's only occurring at the low spine. It's not like your entire back's rounding. Your low spine, specifically one or two segments, are pulling under and back. Under load over repetition and repetition is what eventually creates injury at the low back. So ideally, we want to limit that at, you know, at if at all possible. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things that go into it. Am I saying that just because you have butt wink, you're going to get injured? No. There's a lot of things that go into it. Your specific type of anatomy of your spine, not everyone's the exact same. Some people's spine can tolerate a lot more bending. So person A's not nearly going to have the same amount of bends as person B under load that's going to lead to injury. Then you, there's the amount of weight you're squatting. Then there's the amount of repetitions. Are you squatting for 30 years at 10 reps every, you know, 10 sets of 10, three times a week. You know, there's so many different things that go into it um, that could lead to potential injury. But the mechanism remains the same. Also, for some people, that butt wink under load could actually be the mechanism or the trigger for pain. So a lot of people are like, I have, I have back pain. Well, at the very bottom of your squat, your butt's turning under. That's when your pain comes out. So for some people, that movement is their exact trigger for pain. So that's something, again, we want to try to limit in order for the rehab process to take hold. So butt wink is never okay, especially at the largest amount. Now, if a small amount happens and you're completely healthy, is it the worst thing in the world? Probably not at the time. But in the future, could it be? Very potential. You know, so what we want to do is try to limit that. And the way in which we do so is changing hip stance, looking at hip mobility, looking at ankle mobility, because if we have more ankle mobility, it's going to allow the squat to descend a little bit further without the pelvis moving under. Um, so that's the big thing to look at. Now, the, the question a lot of people have is, is it tight hamstrings? It's not tight hamstrings. The hamstrings are a biarticulate muscle, meaning that it connects at the pelvis and it connects also at the knee. So it crosses two joints. And whenever you squat, the hamstrings, because the hips and the knees are flexing at the same rate, the hamstrings stay relatively the same length. They don't change in length. So if you're standing at the top in a neutral spinal position, hips in a good position, and then you squat down and eventually the pelvis turns under, because the hamstrings didn't change in length throughout the squat, how are they now causing the pelvis to then be turned under? So it's a false uh, premise to think that the hamstrings are the cause of butt wink. It's almost always due to a hip mobility issue or an ankle mobility issue or a squat stance issue as far as your width or toe out angle. Things like that we can modify. Excellent. Yeah, I think that was incredibly well explained. And the the tight hamstring thing comes up all the time. So you must be, you must be, it's good that we're getting that out and dispelled a little bit more. And another one that I think we see a lot of is, talking about kind of the knees traveling past the toes. That seems to be something that's been heavily ingrained for God knows how long. And so I'd love for you to talk about kind of why that might not necessarily be a problem. The knees can most definitely pass the toes in the squat. It's all about when they pass the squat and not 
if. So here's something to think about. As you squat down, especially with the barbell on your back, what we're looking for is the body to stay in balance. So if we view the squat from the side, we want that barbell to remain over the middle of your foot. Well, for some people, depending on their anatomy, lever lengths, different things like that, how deep they're going, there eventually comes a time where that knee needs to translate forward over the toe in order for the bar to stay balanced because if not, and you try to hold those knees back, something's gonna compensate if you wanna continue squatting down. Often that bar starts traveling forward, your chest tips forward because your knees aren't allowing yourself to stay in a balanced position. So the knees can most definitely pass the toes. And the reason probably that this original cue came up is probably a very well-intentioned doctor, physical therapist, that was seeing someone with pain and they had knee pain. And they said, well, squat down. And at the very deep position, their knees came forward and their knees hurt. And they said, hey, don't let your knees come forward. Stop your knees right here. And they squatted down and all of a sudden they're like, oh, my knees don't hurt. They're like, voila, there we go. That's the reason why you have knee pains because you let your knees come forward. Well, if someone has a compression issue at the patellofemoral joint where basically there's so much pressure and sheer force on that knee joint in that area um, and it's creating an irritated joint, Yes, that knee coming forward could create and exacerbate symptoms. So if you just modify technique where we're pushing the hips back, you're just shifting torque and force off that knee joint and putting it on the hip. But that's a short-term change for something. You're putting a Band-Aid on the issue. You're not necessarily fixing why the issue is there in the first place. If we do proper rehab and we address why that knee's angry in the first place and we get that athlete back to a good position, they should be able to, again, squat down with their knees coming forward along as they say balance again. It all comes down to balance and what's moving first. If you start your squat and jam your knees forward at the very start, you can instantly feel all that pressure going to your knees. But if you start your squat with a little hip hinge and then squat straight down and stay balanced, all of a sudden at the very bottom position, you're like, oh, my knees are just as far forward as they were before, but they don't hurt. It's because you're loading your body in the proper sequence that's allowing you to manage the stresses and loads of that movement and you're doing it well. Excellent. And actually, on the same line path of kind of we're talking about the knees, we talked about collapsing in before, and I think that happens a lot. Is there any kind of cues or ways you found within your practice that you've just found, okay, this really seems to fix this problem quite quickly? The thing that a lot of people do is when they look at the knees collapsing in, they go drive the knees wide. Well, that's not always the best way to go about it. Sometimes cueing the foot position is the best way to go about it because a lot of people, they forget about their feet. They don't think about it. So if you're able to start in a good position and feel your feet grabbing the ground, screw your feet into the ground, have that good tripod position where you have an arch in your foot, and then you maintain that position as you squat down, the knees will often go where they should because you've started in a good position. Because often what happens is that as you squat down, if you let your knees collapse in, your foot collapsed first. Mm. You allowed your foot to become weak and shaky, and then the knee came in as a result. So if you're able to start and set your foot in a good position at the start and create that tension all the way up through the body, the full linkage is everything is working correctly, that knee isn't going to collapse in because it's moving on top of a stable platform to start with. Excellent. No, really, really good. I, I love a lot of the the answers and things come back to kind of the number one thing, the technique and making sure that you're you're getting that right. And I think so many people end up 
skipping that step and like you said try and put band-aids on it or doing other things then they get injured and eventually they probably have to come and listen to this podcast and get set straight (laughs) so find you over on instagram and find all of your good stuff so i do want to make sure um people know where to reach out to you i want to say a massive thank you for you to come on Uh, it's been incredibly interesting and i think people are going to really enjoy this chat so yeah if people want to find out more about you aaron where should they head yeah, first off, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun chat. Uh, yeah, I'm all across social media. Instagram's the the largest uh, platform that I put stuff on every single day. Um, but I'm on Twitter, YouTube, my own podcast, Squat University, Facebook, my blog, squatuniversity.com. So basically, Squat University on every single platform, uh, I'm there. You've got so much content. I don't think I've even gone through <laughs> half of that. So um, <laughs> we definitely have a lot of digging to get into. So yeah, thank you once again, Aaron. And guys, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good.